0: From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield.
1: And I'm Brooke Gladstone. On Thursday, the House rejoiced.
0: And it is official. It passes the Republican health care, the repeal of Obamacare, the Republican plan. Keep in mind, this is step one. It now has to go to the Senate, where it faces an uncertain future.
1: This even before the Congressional Budget Office could determine the effects of the bill and before many House members even read it.
2: Have you read the whole bill?
3: Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, I don't think any individual has read the whole bill, but we, that's, that's why we have staff.
1: The momentary triumph capped a week of missteps, sidesteps, falsehoods, and impassioned critiques of the bill, many centering on the extent to which it protects people with pre-existing conditions, a key Obamacare provision. On Face the Nation, President Trump wasn't sure. Pre-existing conditions are in the bill. And I mandated. I said, it "Has to be." On that crucial question. It's not going to be left up to the states. Everybody gets pre-existing, no matter where they live. No, but the states
0: are also going to have a lot to do with okay. it because we ultimately want to get it back down to it's the states. Guarantee. Look, because if you hurt your knee, honestly, I'd rather have the federal government focused on North Korea,
1: focused on other things than your knee. Okay. Meanwhile,
4: you know, before 2014, if you were born with congenital heart disease, like my son was. There was a good chance you'd never be able to get health insurance because you had a pre-existing condition.
1: Jimmy Kimmel's monologue about his newborn son's heart condition threw the political posturing into sharp relief.
4: If your baby is going to die, and it doesn't have to, it, it shouldn't matter how much money you make.
1: The gap between health care as a political football and health care as a lived reality is exceedingly clear in Kentucky. Its top lawmakers, among them Mitch McConnell, Rand Paul, and Governor Matt Bevin, are staunchly anti-Obamacare, and all but two of the state's 120 counties went for Trump. And yet, the state has also seen record numbers of people insured under the Affordable Care Act. Mary Meehan reports on health for Ohio Valley Resource, a regional journalism collaborative covering Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia.
2: I think in part, Kentucky has become sort of a symbol because it's cold country and then it's also known as having poor health outcomes. We have high rates of obesity and diabetes and cancer. At the same time, they did a really good job of signing up people for health care. In some counties, it was 75, 90% of people who were uninsured got insured. So it does look a little schizophrenic. So Kentucky is an
1: Obamacare success story. Some half million people got health insurance through the Medicaid expansion. But it wasn't rolled out as
2: Obamacare, it was called Connect K Y N E C T. And the people who helped you sign up for Obamacare were called Connectors. And from the very beginning, the people in state government who were working to enroll people in Medicaid and Medicaid expansion or to get them to use the exchange never uttered the word Obamacare. Occasionally, they talked about the Affordable Care Act. But there were television commercials about Connect. There were billboards about Connect. There were shopping bags with Connect on them. The former Governor, Steve Bashir,
1: who led the effort for Connect, said, quote, "We wanted to get as far away from the word Obamacare as we could. Do you think if people had associated Connect with Obamacare, they wouldn't have signed up? No. They would have anyway,
2: yeah, because I think the places where Connect has had the greatest impact. they were people from those communities recruiting people within their community, to get health care. So they were the face of Connect. And I think that matters. I think it was a pragmatic decision on the governor's part to distance himself from Obamacare. The word Obama during the political campaigns, it was a pretty toxic phrase here. Because Kentucky is both
1: a Trump stronghold and a place where Obamacare has been so successful, from the outside, it's easy to see it as a place where people are voting against their own interests, something that uh, we liberal elites often say about people who voted for Trump. Do
2: you buy that? The Kentuckians who sort of took this step to create a very effective, very well-organized, very well-promoted Connect program that enrolled hundreds of thousands of people in insurance are the same Kentucky voters who may have voted for Trump, mm-hmm. but it's more complicated than the single issue. I think the fact that you acknowledge the liberal elite view, that does have an effect on people when the message they're getting is that not only are their political opinions wrong, but they are also perhaps not intellectually sound. I'm from Kentucky. I've lived here about half of my life. I lived in a couple other states, both south of the Mason-Dixon line. But I recently was a Nieman Fellow at Harvard, and I was really shocked at the disconnect between the people that I knew in Kentucky and the strongly held assumptions about who those people are, that they were backwards and perhaps not very bright. And if you were well-spoken and didn't have a thick accent, that you were somehow the exception. They made you an exception? It felt like that to me sometimes, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about this, and I had a a long drive to the office today, and I was thinking about the questions that are asked. Is the question to ask, you voted for Trump and you got Medicaid, do you regret that now? Or why did you make that decision when you have benefited from this program? I think the better question to ask now that we're trying to move forward and there is greater interest in flyover country, which I'm grateful for, is what story hasn't been told? What is the story the media haven't told? I think the reflection of Kentucky across the nation is really shown mostly through poverty porn, where they jet into the poorest parts of the poorest place and they show the people in in the most desperate situations. And sadly, that is true for Kentucky. But there are also people within those same communities who are working very hard to maintain those communities, to grow those communities, to care for other people within that community. And I don't think that story is told enough. And do you think that if that story were told, it would offer clarity in
1: the in the current debate over the Affordable Care Act and its repeal?
2: The focus is mainly on the cost and that in the long term, the system is going to bankrupt health care overall. So by helping those who previously were uninsured, the story is that we're threatening The entire system for those working class or middle class people who are more worthy of getting health care. You know, the representative who said people without pre-existing conditions lead good lives and therefore shouldn't have to pay for people who don't lead good lives. That reduces the status of one's health to your ability to work hard enough to maintain it. I have asthma. I've worked since I was 16 years old. Does the fact that I have asthma make me less worthy to have health insurance if I lost my job? I think it's a moral question. So you have given people, a large number of people, medicine and access to care that could be either life-changing or life-saving. And now you're coming back around and you're saying, "Mm, no, not really. We didn't mean it. And why isn't that a question of morality and not of fiscal responsibility?
1: You mentioned that perhaps some Trump voters didn't actually think he would repeal Obamacare, but that he'd make it better. What about now?
2: Is the congressional chaos eroding that belief? I think the congressional chaos is largely invisible to a lot of middle-class working folks who are trying to get through the end of their week. They're not that engaged in the political increments of policy And so, unfortunately, I think it takes until people get slapped in the face with the reality to prompt action. And that's happened in Kentucky, where the town halls have been filled with people who are angry about the possibility of losing their health care. And there are a lot of activists in Kentucky who are also actively working to help motivate people to tell their leadership that they want to keep their health care.
1: Given that you don't live in this bubble— What do you wish Kentuckians could hear from the media and from Washington? And what do you wish Kentuckians could say to the media and Washington?
2: I think it's two-pronged. One, yes, fundamentally there are people who live here who've been suffering for generations. Two, there are highly qualified, competent people who have been successful in their education and their lives who also live here and who also may have voted for Trump. And I think that's the total message that has been lost. It's not just ignorant rednecks who voted for Trump. There are people who I know to be very intelligent, pillars of the community, who voted for Trump. So there's not a Trump voter. This disconnect between the media elite who were sure that Hillary was going to win and the people here that I knew who were sure that she was going to lose – has to be sort of a jumping-off point. We have to look at how that's happened, and I don't think it's happened over the course of this election. I think it's happened over a long number of years. I saw a recent map of where journalists are. There's huge parts of the country where there's not very many. So let's see about getting out here. Have some people move here to cover Kentucky or, you know, look for people on the ground who are familiar with their communities and have a history of reporting them. That's how things will change. It's not going to change by sending an occasional reporter to Whitley County to say, Trump voter, do you now wish you hadn't voted for Donald Trump? I don't think that's the right approach.
1: Mary, thank you very much. You're welcome. Mary,
2: what are you laughing about? I just Did I defend my people adequately? That's what I'm wondering. (laughs) I think so. I wasn't attacking them. No, I don't think you were. I just think it's hard to articulate because— On the face, it seems so incongruent. But I think that's why it matters to have some depth and knowledge of the place that you're trying to report on because a lot of red states have not been on the media's agenda for quite some time. Yep. I mean, that's the thing. Yes, there were Trump rallies. But there were also large, large protests. There was a a women's march in Lexington, Kentucky that I have never seen a crowd that big. And there were places like Pikeville and Moorhead and Bowling Green who also had anti-Trump rallies. So there's not just one kind of Kentuckian that people are used to sort of checking a box about. There's a lot of different kinds of us. Come meet us.
1: (laughs) Mary Meehan reports on health for Ohio Valley Resource, a regional journalism collaborative covering Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. She's based at W.E.K.U. at Eastern Kentucky University in Richmond. Coming up, the health care vote didn't come from nowhere. This is On the Media.
5: Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive?
3: Listener-supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
0: And I'm Bob Garfield. With Republicans in charge of Congress and the White House, not to mention the recent vote on health care, the influential conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation, should be in
6: clover. Instead... It's in turmoil. Heritage Foundation president, he is the former South Carolina senator, Jim Demin. He is resigning from his post at Heritage. This, after a unanimous vote from the board called for him to step down.
0: And the venerable institution's scholarly half is reportedly at odds with its political operation. It's an ironic twist at a political moment that in many ways is the culmination of a painstaking and extremely costly reordering of the political landscape. McKay Coppins is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Wilderness, a book about the battle over the future of the Republican Party.
3: Jim DeMinn was really a Ted Cruz-like figure before Ted Cruz was in the Senate. He was a truth-telling bomb thrower. Not somebody known for making a lot of compromises or getting legislation passed, but the kind of guy who was out there making a defiant, impassioned case for conservative ideas and conservative values. And it was exactly the kind of profile that I think Heritage was looking for when they wanted to enter the political sphere more aggressively. What's changed, I think, since then is that Heritage is embedded with the White House in a way that they weren't four years ago. maybe it makes more sense for them to be uh, kind of quietly advising the president as opposed to angrily picking fights with people in power.
0: It was chartered to be a scholarly institution hmm. to create the intellectual academic underpinnings for its policy goals. It kind of bifurcated. It's not of late under Jim Dement the pure think tank that it once was, yeah. right?
3: Yeah. So Heritage launched this kind of political arm called Heritage Action, whose job was basically to lobby Congress, to support candidates, to pick big, high-profile, dramatic fights in Washington over the issues that they cared about. And increasingly, over the last several years, it's become known, especially in Congress and in Washington, primarily for that. You look at any of the big, dramatic episodes on the right – Over the past few years, and there's a chance that Heritage had a pretty combative role in it.
0: Like shutting down the government, for example.
3: Yes, that's right. The 2013 government shutdown was in large part driven by Heritage Action. Think about the immigration fight of 2013, where the Senate passed a bipartisan immigration reform legislation only to have it torpedoed before it ever passed the House or got to the president's desk. Heritage Action had a pretty big role in waging that fight as well. A lot of people on Capitol Hill were kind of shocked and taken aback, and it's earned them a lot of enemies, it's safe to say. It strikes
0: me that if you are presenting yourself to the world as a scholarly institution, which presumes a kind of intellectual honesty, if you're also trying to be an advocacy organization for a political ideology, it would put your
3: scholarly work very much into doubt. Well, this is certainly one of the big points of contention in Heritage these days. And you hear basically two competing camps spinning their stories. From the anti-Dement camp, you hear people saying that under his leadership, the researchers and the academics and the policy folks were increasingly expected to produce research and papers that had a predetermined conclusion. Cooking the books. Yeah, right. So heritage leadership would come and say, we want to have research to back up this position we're going to stake out, whether it was on immigration, or tax reform, or whatever. And then there would be an expectation that the researchers and academics would produce research that supported that. People in deMence Camp say that that's ludicrous, that that never happened, that there was this very stark wall that separated the research folks from the political folks. And maybe that was true organizationally. But the reality is, When Heritage is out there in the news every day picking big political fights, it's hard for the researchers not to notice that.
0: On the subject of bifurcation, the Republicans control both houses of Congress. They control the executive branch. They have, again, a majority on the Supreme Court. So they should be in clover, but uh, <laughs> there's trifurcation, quadrification. <laughs> yes, heritage is circumstances seem to me to be kind of the circumstances of conservatism and the GOP in microcosm. They are not mm. a
3: monolith. That's absolutely right. To most outside observers, it looked like the Republican Party for the last eight years was pretty united because they were united in opposition to Obama. Now that Donald Trump is president, who has championed a sort of nationalist, populist message that is not necessarily rooted in the Reagan-style conservatism that Heritage, for example, championed, the power politics that are taking place backstage at Heritage have all been fought around Donald Trump's rise and the various ideological tensions that have arisen from that. What ends up happening to heritage really could foretell what happens to the American right and more broadly to this country's politics over the next several years. McKay,
0: thank you so much. Thank you. McKay Coppins is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the suddenly very relevant The Wilderness, a book about the battle over the future of the Republican Party. After the House vote to repeal and replace Obamacare, the president and House Speaker Paul Ryan can both now claim they've kept their promise to deliver Americans from the tyranny of the nanny state into the efficient hands of the free market.
3: A real, vibrant marketplace
4: with competition and lower premiums for families. That's what the American Healthcare Act is all about.
0: The vote was also, at least superficially, a triumph for conservative orthodoxy. Small government over big, low taxes over high, states' rights over national government, and so on. But that orthodoxy did not spring fully formed into post-World War II America. It was painstakingly constructed over the decades as a means to achieve the ultimate goal, the preservation of capital for really rich people. Jane Mayer is a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Dark Money The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right.
6: A lot of what you think of as the modern day machinery of right wing ideology all goes back to the imposition of an income tax in this country, which happened sort of around 1916. There was a great uproar on the part of some of the wealthiest families in the country who didn't want to pay income taxes. And a deal was struck. Congress told these families, if you give your money away to charitable organizations, we will give you a tax break. But the gifts have to be in the public's good. And a lot of what you're looking at now, think tanks and and much else in politics, actually is set up as sort of an arm of philanthropy.
0: Are we speaking of the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and similar philanthropically funded organizations?
6: Absolutely. The Rockefeller Foundation is the granddaddy of them all. When the Rockefeller family wanted to set up its own personal family foundation, it was incredibly controversial. There was bipartisan opposition from across the board. All of these congressmen and senators said, this is an undemocratic thing. To have a rich family be able to spend its money on public policy and get a tax deduction. They saw foundations as unaccountable to anybody but the super rich and playing an undemocratic role in the midst of our democratic society.
0: Were these big capitalists indeed figuring out a way to influence public policy?
6: Well, the first step towards politicized philanthropy in the view of many people was the Ford Foundation, And it wasn't for quite some time. It was really in the 1960s when it got involved in education policy, all tied up with teachers unions and with integration and all those issues. And the right wing made a lot of noise about it and the Ford Foundation backed off. But the right wing also learned from it and soon started pouring money into its own philanthropies that became intensely political.
0: The thrust of this conversation is going to be on the Heritage Foundation that undertakes to understand and promote conservative policy and ideology, but it wasn't the first think tank. Who were the first think tanks?
6: The early think tanks were Brookings, which was actually founded by a Republican who wanted explicitly to have people of different points of views gather together to do scholarly work and try to solve society's problems. He wanted many points of view. The Russell Sage Foundation was also quite early. They were trying to put the best minds to work to solve society's problems.
0: Non-ideological, non-partisan, presumably legitimate academic scholarship.
6: Right. And they thought of themselves very much as neutral and apolitical, really. Many of the solutions that the earlier think tanks, including Brookings, came up with involved answers that involved government activism of some sort or another. So when the right finally weighs in with its own version, they attacked these organizations as being liberal, but the organizations were not set up to be liberal or anything else from their own standpoint. So to the extent that
0: the political right believed that think tanks like the Brookings Institution had aligned with progressive ideas, this gives us heritage,
6: By about 1971, some of the leaders of the biggest businesses in America became alarmed. They watched the anti-Vietnam War movement taking on the companies that were involved in the defense industry, the consumer movement of Ralph Nader, and the environmental movement that was beginning to call for all kinds of regulations on pollution. And you get this kind of call-to-arms by Lewis Powell, who was then a lawyer from Richmond. He wasn't Mm -hmm. yet on the Supreme Court. He wrote a paper for the Chamber of Commerce, and he said, big business, if you don't get organized, we're going to lose our way of life. The enemy is not the kids who are on the streets protesting. It's not hippies or yippies. The enemy is elite public opinion. And if we want to fight back, we have to change the way the elite public opinion is formed in this country. All of the instruments that form public opinion, meaning the media, the pulpits, academia, science, the courts, and public policy. So the creation of right-wing think tanks starting in the late 1970s was an answer to Lewis Powell's call to arms. The people who set up the Heritage Foundation were literally talking about this Lewis Powell memo and saying, we've got to do something, we've got to spend money, we've got to fight back. Joseph Kors, who was heir to a brewing company in Colorado, sent a letter to his senator, Gordon Allett, and said, I've got money, how do I spend it? And an aide who was working for Allett saw this letter, and his name was Paul Wyrick, And he Mm. was one of the two founders of the Heritage Foundation. And he said, I've got an idea. We're going to set up this think tank.
0: And Richard Mellon Scaife, the arch-conservative Pittsburgh billionaire, came in at approximately the same time with approximately the same idea.
6: (laughs) That's absolutely right. Coors came in with the first funding for the Heritage Foundation. Coors was a John Birch Society member, and so coming from the far right. And people said at Heritage, he gives six packs, but Richard Mellon Scaife gives cases. Hmm. He was just overwhelmingly the the major funder of the early Heritage Foundation. I think he gave $23 million in its, its first 10 years or so. At that time, just a phenomenal amount of money.
0: Now, there's two ways for an institution that wants to influence policy to behave. One is to do bona fide scholarship, and that scholarship should inform recommendations for public policy. Another way is to determine what public policy you want and then kind of manufacture the scholarship to suit. Is that what
6: Heritage did? Right. Eric Warner, who was the chairman of the Russell Sage Foundation, said, «Heritage turned the model on its head». When the Heritage Foundation was started, there's sort of a origination myth. Edwin Fulner, Jr., who was one of the co-founders and is now coming back to run it again, he was working in Congress as an aide, and he and Paul Wyrick, his friend, there was some kind of legislation that they were unhappy with, and the current think tanks that had existed at the time only weighed in after the fact— The American Enterprise Institute was a conservative think tank that already existed, but it didn't feel its place was to get involved and lobby the congressman before the legislation was voted on. And these two young aides thought, well, that's stupid. You have no effect if you're not going to get in the congressman's faces before they take the vote. And so when they founded the Heritage Foundation, it was explicitly to lobby. They weren't just a think tank. They were, as they call themselves, a do tank it's kind of an unfortunate term but they've
0: used it. <laughs> you know i have a friend who was back in the day a soviet emigre and back in lithuania and soviet lithuania he was an econometrician he had to fill his model with input output data that was entirely invented by communist <laughs> bureaucrats he was told what the outcome should be then had to come up with the raw data to produce that outcome
6: Is it that bad? People like Steve Clemens, who worked in sort of conservative think tank worlds, and David Brock, who was originally on the right and is now on the left, but who was inside those think tanks. What these people who were firsthand observers inside would talk about is that the scholarship was corrupted. And they do describe that. Now, I mean, I have to say I'm not willing to think the liberal side has all the answers and that it's always academically honest either. I'm sure that these things happen on all sides. It's just that the think tanks on the right were built for political purposes. One of the areas where this matters the most, of course, is when it comes to issues like global warming where there's so much money – on one side of the scholarship. The whole fossil fuel industry is trying to fund research that says global warming is either not real or if it's real it's not bad and nobody should do anything about it because the solutions are worse than the problem. There's just endless amounts of that kind of phony science and it follows very much in the wake of the same kind of phony science that was paid for by the tobacco industry, which for years said that cancer is not caused by smoking. You would get out of these right-wing think tanks theories like supply-side economics, which claimed that if you cut everybody's taxes, more money will come into the government somehow because the economy will thrive. Well, I mean, we've had a few experiments in it now, and it hasn't worked that way. And yet remains an article of faith in conservative thought. It's a zombie theory that can't be killed because it keeps being revived by these think tanks. And also it serves the purposes of the donors to the think tanks. All right. So let's just say I'm really mad about the Civil Rights Act and the Clean Water Act and the Clean
0: Air Act. And I want to build myself a great influence machine. How do I do it?
6: Well, that's pretty much the question that faced Charles and David Koch, among others. And they were engineers who had graduated with both undergraduate and graduate degrees from MIT, and they looked at taking over American politics as a great engineering challenge. And they decided you couldn't really rely on just funding candidates, because the candidates are just going to spout sort of conventional wisdom. And so what they set out to do was change what the conventional wisdom in the country was by setting up think tanks, funding intellectuals, funding academic centers. They now fund something like 350 of them in universities and colleges across the country. Funding media organizations and disputing science by coming up with counter-science studies. All of that is how you do it, and that's really how they did it.
0: I think it might be instructive to look at just one little point within the ecosystem to see how interconnected it all is. There was a time when Dartmouth was just one of the Ivy League colleges. Then there was a strategic investment in academic centers at Dartmouth, which became one of the hotbeds of conservative thinking, at least on the East Coast.
6: Dartmouth's a good example. The Dartmouth Review in particular started getting money from outside organizations, and it was an on-campus publication that became kind of an incubator for many of the more famous conservative propagandists and writers right now. Dinesh D'Souza came out of there, and Laura Ingram, and many others. It was a directed effort by funders on the right to try to have centers in the universities that would Cultivate conservatives that would then go on and become leaders.
0: In your book, you quote Steve Wasserman, who is editor at large at Yale University Press, one of the bastions, I suppose, of the liberal coastal elite, <laughs> lamenting that wealthy liberal donors simply aren't as keen to make intellectual investments as the right wingers.
6: Well, I thought that was a really good point. You have to give conservatives some credit here. They funded an intellectual movement, and they did it over 40 years. They played a long game funding people writing books, people like Charles Murray, people like George Gilder. And the Democrats were much more short-term in their thinking. They maybe put money into particular political races, but they didn't really look at this whole thing as funding and infrastructure that was built to last and change the way the country thinks. Because politics follows the money, it goes after the money, it secures the
0: money, and it does the bidding of the money, we now have a a legislature that represents the interests of this dark money. Talk about being out of touch. It's not the media. It's the actual Congress that is out of touch with the thinking of mainstream America. Is that observation correct?
6: I think it is in many ways. I would argue that part of the reason Trump got elected was he went in a different direction from what many of these think tanks, for instance, have been pushing. They were pushing free trade, open immigration, and they were also pushing for privatization of things like Social Security. And if you remember, I don't know if he'll stick to his promises, but he promised to strengthen Social Security rather than gutting it. He talked about infrastructure spending, which is very popular with voters and very unpopular with big right-wing donors who want to shrink big government as they see it. So, you know, Trump saw an opening there, and I would say he exploited it pretty well.
0: Jane, thank you so much.
6: Glad to be with you.
0: Jane Mayer is a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Dark Money.
1: Coming up, how do you craft a message about climate change for conservative skeptics?
0: This is On The Media.
5: On The Media is brought to you by ZBiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? ZBiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use otm at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash OTM and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off.
0: At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry.
5: But But we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs.
0: <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers.
1: And hopefully make you see the world anew.
0: Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
1: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is on the media. I'm Bob Garfield.
1: And I'm Brooke Gladstone. So, as the shape of conservatism remains in flux, some conservatives are trying to redraw the line on climate change policy. Jerry Taylor is the president of the libertarian think tank, the Niskanen Center, which is trying to convert climate change skeptics, not deniers who believe it doesn't exist, but those who believe it won't be so bad, into climate advocates. So, Jerry Taylor is working Capitol Hill, but he had to be converted first, because for 23 years as vice president of the libertarian think tank the Cato Institute, it was his job to do the opposite, cast doubt on the danger posed by climate change.
4: I was arguing the line that was probably best represented recently by Brett Stevens in the New York Times, that climate change is real, but there's a tremendous amount of uncertainties, and there's a lot of reason to think that it would be a relative non-event, and That was the talking point that I had honed over my days.
1: And yet, no more in an era when your position on climate change helps define your political identity and your value system. What made you change your mind?
4: Well, the very first thing that happened to shake my confidence in the narratives I was offering was that... In the course of debating this position, I was offering scientific narratives, and then I was being challenged on them.
1: In the early 2000s, doing Battle on TV, you were on a show with climate activist Joe Rahm, and you quoted the testimony of climate scientist James Hansen back in 1988.
4: Right. So this is the first leg in the stool of my position to got (laughs) i had argued that in 1988, James Hansen had testified in front of the United States Senate, and he said if we continued with business as usual, we'd see warming of X within the next decade.
1: X degrees.
4: Right. And more than a decade has passed, and if you look at the warming we've seen, it's only been about a quarter of that. So I'd argued that Hansen clearly overestimated the degree to which the climate is sensitive to greenhouse gas emissions, and this is bracing evidence that climate change won't be as serious as we think. And so when I got done with the show, Joe Rahm asked me in the green room if I had read that testimony recently, and I confess it's been a while. I was simply reflecting on testimony that some of my colleagues had offered in the Senate themselves some months back. So you're on TV with me, says Joe, and you make a claim, and I've got 20 seconds to answer it. And he says, if you want to keep being a hack, feel free. And he challenged me to go back and read the testimony that Hanson had provided the Senate. And he said, look, if you do, what you're going to find is that the reason Hanson was off with his projection isn't that he overestimated climate sensitivity. Hansen had over-predicted how much greenhouse gases we put up there in the following decade.
1: Do you know why he over-predicted that?
4: Well, that's very uncertain. I mean, how can you foresee recession? How can you foresee trade developments, technological innovation? He had a couple of other scenarios as well. If you look at those scenarios with the emissions trajectories that we've actually seen, and he also had a temperature projection for that emission scenario, and it was pretty much exactly correct. Then I went to the climate scientists who were offering this story about how James Hansen was off and asked them what I'm missing here because we shouldn't be going around arguing that James Hansen is a crackpot. And it turned out that the scientists I had talked to seemed to be fully aware of the problems with their narrative, but they didn't care. Look, I'm not a scientist, but I trusted these scientists to well inform me on the matters, and I can no longer really trust them. From that point forward, I began to do far more due diligence on the scientific narratives that I was deferring to from the scientists who were in our camp. And I found out that the more you did that due diligence, the more you found variations of that story playing out again and again and again and again. And so I put the scientific arguments aside, and I migrated more towards economic arguments about climate action.
1: Has your message evolved over time? has you've gotten the responses back?
4: Well, it has. I think you can make a very strong argument for a policy response to climate change without getting involved in a hot debate about the science. And the reality is, is whether Republicans like it or not, there is going to be a unilateral U.S. policy response to climate change that they can't do anything about. 30% of the U.S. economy has a carbon price through state policy. More than uh, two dozen states have mandates on the electricity sector to produce percentages of renewable energy. So the reality is is that there will be a response. Would you rather it be market-friendly and harnessing capitalism or hostile the market by harnessing regulators? This seems like an easy call. Well, it turns out that this is akin to telling Southerners that whether they like it or not, their best course of action is to have Lee go to Appomattox and sign a surrender paper to, to Ulysses S. Grant. And so that's an evolution in our strategy. We began by sidestepping any hot discussion about science on Capitol Hill, but it became clear that we could not do that. turns out that it's very difficult to motivate Republicans to act against climate if they're not convinced that climate change is a significant risk.
1: So you first have to convince them that their skepticism is on shaky ground, and then you bring in the economic argument, and you've said that, One of the most influential people you spoke to with regard to this is a guy named Bob Litterman, who was the head of risk management at Goldman Sachs.
4: Yeah, Bob came to my office one day and said, look, you have a hot dispute about the most likely outcomes from climate change. You say it'll be modest and economically manageable. Others say it'll be at the high end of the projections and be a catastrophe and you argue that you're right, therefore climate action shouldn't occur, and they argue they're right, and therefore we need to engage in a very dramatic response. But that's the wrong conversation to have. We have a wide range of possible outcomes from climate change. There's a lot of uncertainty, that is true. But the uncertainty cuts both ways. It may be modest, it may be catastrophic. In risk management, you said the work that I did at Goldman, we dealt with issues like this all the time. We didn't worry so much about the most likely outcome. We hedge against risk.
1: His point was that if this kind of risk were to arise in any other context in the private markets, people would pay real money to hedge against it.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's nothing we can invest in that will make us whole if climate change occurs. No such thing exists. So in financial markets, we call these non-diversifiable risks. And we know that when people in financial markets deal with non-diversifiable risks, they pay huge amounts of money to avoid them. And if we look at climate change as an example of a non-diversifiable risk that we have to jointly entertain, behave in the same fashion when it comes to climate action, and it's an open and shut case for policy response.
1: How are you getting your message out?
4: Mostly in face-to-face meetings. Our objective is to talk directly to the Republicans who are engaged in policymaking. So we spend a tremendous amount of our time on Capitol Hill, meeting with elected members of the House and the Senate, meeting with senior staff, meeting with senior committee staff. And we do talk to Democrats as well. We're not just the Republican whisperers. Because the reality is we're not going to see a unified Republican Party embrace climate action. We're going to need a bipartisan coalition. And when you talk to Republicans on Capitol Hill, you find that there are maybe 40 or so, perhaps 50 in the House, and maybe 10 or 12 Republicans in the Senate who are deeply uncomfortable being interned in the denialist penitentiary of the Republican Party. They would like to break out. They would like to have a Republican response to climate change that is meaningful, but they're not entirely sure what that response ought to look like, and they're not sure there's a window of opportunity for them politically to forward that idea.
1: So what is that response?
4: Well, we believe the best response is to simply put a price on greenhouse gas emissions that is robust and allows us to begin the process of decarbonizing the economy, and then leave it to people in the marketplace to decide when, where, and how to achieve those emissions reductions. Far better to simply turn the market loose to respond to climate change with accurate pricing than to turn regulators loose and then have an endless technocratic dispute, which is not so easily resolved about whether wind is better than solar or better than nuclear power and how much of a role should energy efficiency play and what kind of rules and guidelines should we have and then regulate every nook and cranny of the economy so that we have the most energy-efficient light bulbs possible or what have you far better to just unleash the pricing mechanisms to give people incentives to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or let them discover through profit or loss the best ways to do that. Now, that's the consensus position of virtually all the economists who study in this issue. Heck, it's the position of ExxonMobil, the position of Al Gore, it's the position of James Hansen. So we think that's the right approach, and it's one that seems relatively attractive. Republicans, after all, they need to brand a policy response in a fashion that looks Republican. <laughs> You ask Republicans to simply endorse policy ideas that have been endorsed by Al Gore and that it concede that Gore was right on climate change and he was right about policy response, you're never going to win that fight. You need something that looks distinctly Republican.
1: You suggest that maybe there are 40 or 50 Republicans in the House, maybe 10 or 12 in the Senate who feel trapped in the denialist prison and would love a way out. Is this giving them a way out?
4: We've found that privately a lot of Republicans are very interested in carbon pricing. They need to see a political way to get there, however. You need a window of opportunity to appear. We have some windows that will be opening soon on tax reform, for instance. Republicans are not going to pass a $4 trillion tax cut without any offsets. And a carbon tax could provide $2 trillion in 10 years. That's a pretty big lift. And while that's unpopular in the Republican Party, so is every other revenue offset
0: Uh, value
4: added tax is not popular a giant loophole closing operation is not popular a border adjustment tax is not popular so where the republicans going to go so there's an opportunity there there's an opportunity when it comes to the infrastructure package once again we're looking at spending lord knows how much we have got no plan here but we're talking something around a trillion dollars over 10 years and that would be nice to pay for, and a carbon tax might be a good way of paying for that as well. Donald Trump has entertained an increase in the federal gasoline taxes a means of paying for it. So that's a possibility. And another possibility is if Republicans are looking at 2018 as a exercise in grim death with the indivisible movement and Democrats threatening to take over the House, they then have to think about the fact that all of the levers and buttons in the EPA cockpit that gave them the clean power plan and the prospect of far more will still be there for a Democratic president after maybe 2020. And if it's time for them to cut a deal on climate change, now is a really good time to cut one because they won't have as much political strength now as they in the future. So that's another possibility for us.
1: So tell me about What sets you apart from your liberal counterparts arguing to get policymakers to take climate change seriously? What are the liberals getting wrong here?
4: The first thing is in American politics, oftentimes the messenger is more important than the message. And conservatives are simply unlikely to listen seriously to environmentalists simply because of who they are. that's human nature. So there's a messenger problem, which we hope to solve in this canon, because we come from the conservative Republican Team Red community.
1: But you're funded by the liberal Rockefellers, right?
4: We're funded by a lot of different people, but for the most part, nobody on the Hill really cares one way or the other. Our ideological DNA is fairly obvious to everybody. The second thing I think that liberals often get wrong is that they overstate certainty. And... There is a lot of uncertainty here. So if you are going to get in the grill of a Republican who's agnostic or skeptical about climate change and talk about how Westworld is an inevitability a hundred years hence, you're going to get a lot of pushback. And so talking about this as a risk, just like any other, that resonates. But what doesn't resonate is overstating how much we can be certain about different outcomes. So that's also been a problem
1: people will remember forty years ago when the population explosion was the big issue.
4: Yeah, it's a standard trope from the right. And in fact that's one of the things that I used to offer as well to Cato donors in my speeches. And it's like, well environmentalists told us that the population bomb was going to devastate mankind and that bomb never went off. And then we were told in the seventies that we were about to run out of oil, gas, coal, tin, aluminum, nickel, copper, everything, and we would have a resource starved society, and that never came to pass either. And so it's easy to point to left-of-center or environmentalist arguments about doom on the horizon when that horizon never came. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: So when it became clear that population growth was not going to turn us into solute green eaters where we were going to move into some Malthusian hell, we moved on. And the uh, medical and economic and scientific community moved on to other matters. The same thing with resource depletion. But climate change has been with us now as a live concern for more than 30 years, and it gains strength with every single passing year. The science behind it gains strength. The economic case for acting gains strength. It's not a here-again, gone-tomorrow cry of wolf. It's been put to the scientific test, and it continues to pass that test, and actually the case for it continues to
1: get stronger. Opposing climate change policy seems to have become part of the conservative identity How do you untangle the two?
4: Well, the conservative identity can change fast. Who would have expected two years ago that the Republicans would nominate for president someone who is against free trade, which has been a Republican position for about four decades, someone who was as ferociously hostile to immigration as he was, whereas the Republican Party used to be the party at the Shining City on the Hill. It's also easy to forget that less than a decade ago, this very same Republican Party nominated for president, John McCain, who argued for climate action, which was even more aggressive than what Barack Obama attempted to do in the White House. And the Republicans adopted a platform in 2008 that, when discussing climate change, called for deep decarbonization using market forces. Now, the point here is not to make predictions about the future, but is to say party orthodoxies can change faster than you think.
1: Thank you very much, Jerry.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Jerry Taylor is the president of the libertarian think tank, the Niskanen Center. The weather is frightening, the thunder and lightning seem to be
3: having their way. But as far as I'm concerned, it's
1: a lovely day.
2: The turn in the weather will keep us together, so I can
0: honestly say
2: that as far as I'm concerned, it's a
0: lovely day. and everything That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, and Michael Loewinger. We had more help from Sara Kari, Leia Feder, and Kate Bakhtiarova, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence
1: Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media
5: is a production of WNYC Studios.
0: I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield.
5: On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Z-Biotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with z Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink. Drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use wnyc at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.